friends, this is Dr. Michael Williams, and welcome back to another episode of the Diversifying Path podcast. This podcast explores how investing in diversity can lead to a high return on investment in pathology and laboratory medicine by learning from the knowledge and experiences of diverse voices within our field. My next guest is Dr. Nicole Kroom. She is a mixed chick and middle child from Stockton, California. She received her MD from the University of California, San Francisco, and an MPH from the University of California, Berkeley. She stuck around San Francisco to complete an anatomic and clinical pathology residency at UCSF before moving to the Pacific Northwest for a forensic pathology fellowship at the Kings County Medical Examiner's Office in Seattle, Washington. She graduated from her fellowship program in July of 2022 with the plan of joining a local medical examiner's office in the fall of 2022. Her forensic-related interests include the association between public health and death investigation, emergent infectious diseases, and educating potential future forensic pathologists through mediums such as Dead Men Do Tell Tales, podcast that she hosted with with another forensic pathology fellow. In her spare time, Nicole enjoys reading dystopian fiction, kickboxing, thrifting for dresses with pockets, vicariously living the farm life through Stardew Valley, and spending an evening at home with a streaming service whilst cuddling with her husband and cat and sipping a craft beer. Without further ado, here's Dr. Nicole Crone. All right. Hi again, friends. This is Dr. Michael Williams. I'm here again with another episode of the Diversifying Path podcast. And so I'm here with my next guest. So can you tell us who you are, where you are from, and your pronouns? My name is Nicole Kroom. I am a mixed chick and middle child from Stockton, California, which is located in Northern California, the Central Valley, about 45 minutes south of the capital Sacramento, not San Francisco, Sacramento. Um, and my pronouns are she, her. I love the mixed chick middle child. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, it's like, I love the tagline with that. Um, and then can you tell us what level of training you're in? I'm currently a forensic pathology fellow at the King County Medical Examiner's Office in Seattle, Washington. All right. Okay. So can you tell us? What got you involved into medicine and how you um, eventually came from Sacramento Sacramento to where you're at currently in training? Tell us your journey. Yeah. Uh, So uh, technically my first exposures to medicine, you know, besides going to the doctor, um, was my mom. She was actually a clinical laboratory scientist while I was growing up. And even into adulthood, she worked for far too many years and only retired uh, right at the beginning of the COVID pandemic, which is not ideal timing for somebody who needs to start relaxing. Right. Um, But (laughs) but yeah, uh, growing up when I was little, little, I wanted to be a pediatrician because that's the only type of doctor I knew. And um, getting exposed to that, uh, I was also very interested in health in general. Um, But then... With my mom, we used to go visit her in the lab when we would grab lunch with her as kids. My dad was a stay-at-home dad, and so uh, sometimes he would take us over there, and so we would get to look through microscopes at the urine samples that she had, and I always thought it was super cool. Mm -hmm. Um, But 
really after that phase in my life, I didn't become cognizant of medicine and different fields in medicine again until I was a junior in high school-ish. Mm-hmm. Um, I was a huge fan of all of those forensic science TV shows like CSI Las Vegas, mm-hmm. the original, uh, <laughs> NCIS, Bones, etc. Um, so uh, once I learned that being a forensic pathologist was a thing. I really wanted to get to know more about that field in particular. Um, So my love of forensic science, plus I was really interested in studying human anatomy and physiology. Um, So during my senior year of high school, we had to do something called a senior project, which I don't know if they still have to do in high schools, but essentially it was like a year long project we had to do and we had to deliver certain things at different periods in time and then do like a 30 minute oral presentation at the end and show off a binder and a typed report, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. It was basically like a little thesis, but for senior year of high school. For the high schoolers, Um, yeah. (laughs) And for that, I wanted to do something. Yeah, yeah. So for that, I wanted to do something related to forensics. Um, And my mom actually had a friend from work whose daughter was a deputy coroner at an office somewhere. Um, So my mom reached out to her and tried to get me a shadowing opportunity. Um, But unfortunately, her office at the time didn't let lay people come in. Uh, There's a lot of, you know, bureaucracy in the world of forensic pathology which I'm sure we'll talk a little bit more about later but Mm -hmm. so I I didn't end up being able to shadow at that office um, but I was able eventually to shadow at the San Joaquin Sheriff Coroner's office which was uh, just outside of Stockton so it was really easy to commute to Mm -hmm. Um, and while I was there shadowing a deputy coroner uh, or death investigator I got to meet the chief medical examiner at the time um, Dr. Bennett Omalu, who people might know because mm-hmm. of the movie Concussion. He um, is uh, renowned for discovering chronic traumatic encephalopathy in football players. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. yeah. And he was amazing. He took the time to answer a few of my questions about the field. And then he said, if I ever wanted to come and shadow him um, specifically, uh, I could. So when I was in undergrad at UCLA um, I would come back and I would shadow him whenever I was home on vacations Mm -hmm. and so he was an excellent mentor who I would not have gotten into the field of forensic pathology without so essentially from that point on I knew I really wanted to go into forensic pathology um, and nothing along my journey swayed me from that so I actually ended up writing my personal statement for medical school about forensic pathology and how much I loved it um, and uh, and then residency the same thing personal statement was about forensic pathology um, okay. and so I there's a there was a lot of talk initially when I was applying about whether or not I should mention that forensic pathology was what I wanted to do mm-hmm. um, at those different stages because mm-hmm. um, there it is like the dark side of forensic pathology and a lot of clinical specialists don't really understand its importance in relation to medicine either Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, so a couple people thought reading my personal statement that it would actually discourage medical schools from accepting me but I actually found the opposite to be true which is definitely a thing that I um, tell people who are interested in going into the field like don't 
shy away from saying that you're interested because I think nowadays most people at all stages of medicine know that forensic pathology is important because of all of the news articles that right. you know come up about offices being backlogged with autopsies etc cetera, etc cetera. Yeah. and everybody knows that there is a severe shortage in the field so no longer discouraging people from going into it well you know i wanted to um you know of course thank you for sharing that and like um at least this stage of the story <laughs> But, you know, I actually was going <laughs> to yeah. bring up bring that up in terms of, like, you know, when I first applied to med school and bringing up the fact of doing forensic pathology. I mean, I think in general it it has it is popularized because of the sitcom, of the TV shows that are occurring, um, the documentaries and all that. But then also, like, having the, the clinical side, clinicians who are dealing with um, patients and doing uh, the best to optimize the patient's health, reading about somebody who wants to be on the other end, like, all right, like the patient um, unfortunately passed away for various reasons and trying to figure out why, like, you know, the the fear of the, the I guess, internal conflict of reading, like, why would you want to enter medicine if the patient's already dead um, type, I guess, stereotype that's out there. Um, and I kind of wanted to, yeah. like, ask you more about that and get your thoughts and opinions. I know we started talking about that. But I guess let's say there's a medical student who's applying for that. Um, uh, sorry, if there is a high school student or college student who's thinking about forensic pathology. Yeah. And they come up with that. Or even who are, uh, clinicians who are, like, hearing this and maybe on a admissions board and they read someone who wants to do forensic pathology. What are, I guess, stereotypes or things that we could destigmatize now um, from your experience to let them know like um, the importance of forensic pathology in medicine overall yeah so um, it was actually really interesting working with Dr. Omalu because not only is he an MD but he also had an MPH which um, he really emphasized the public health aspects of forensic pathology for me versus I feel like a lot of those TV shows really highly overemphasize the criminal justice aspect of forensic pathology. And while forensic pathology does serve a lot of great criminal justice purposes, um, its main purpose is for public health, um, which is something I think people still don't even realize. Uh, only like 10 to 15 percent, and even that might be high nowadays, of the caseload that a forensic pathologist sees are homicides. Um, most of the rest of them are either due to natural disease or accidents, and so all of the work that we do helps contribute to public health, um, letting people know what people in the community are dying from, what we need to keep an eye on so we can direct resources appropriately. So for me, I was always focused more on that public health aspect of forensics. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, in interviews, people would always talk about like, oh, is it like the TV shows or whatever? And no, it's actually way more important than just the things they highlight on the TV shows. But I think coming at it from that public health perspective mm -hmm. really made my my interviewers understand that, sure, when you're going into clinical medicine, a lot of your focus is on like the individual patient, right, right. you know, but this, you're focused on that individual decedent and helping to finish, tell their story by relating how they died and helping their family to get closure from that. Mm -hmm. But you're also helping the community at large by letting everybody know like, hey, this thing 
that's causing a lot of people to die that I'm seeing now is maybe an emerging health crisis that we should maybe take care of. So, you know, raising those flags. And I think that's one of the most important things that forensic pathology does. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks for, yeah. Thanks for sharing that too. And like having that, that perspective, because it's interesting, like even when I tell family like, Oh, I'm doing pathology. They're like, Oh, like, so you just deal with dead bodies all the time. You're like, well, (laughs) you know, pathology (laughs) is so much more than just the dead bodies. And, um, you know, I like, you know, when I was talking to like a, a medical student, um, and like about just pathology in general, like I was there with other like different specialties. Um, and you know, the, the term of like clinical care came up and then it basically was just like, there was this like, I don't know, like comment about like, Oh, like you just did with dead people. So like, you don't really have to worry about that. And it was just like, well, it, yeah. it was, it was kind of sad because I was just like, Oh no, like, you know, we have, medical students who are entering and they we we either we're not reaching out to them enough or our field is just so hidden and buried that we didn't know and then like forensic pathology itself it's like i think that's the face well just say the face but like what's there in 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 again tv shows and what's in the media and so people kind of see and relate that but then they think pathology is all that and then have a skewed perspective about what forensic pathologists actually do um so that was just like my experience but Let's continue on. And so now you are, because <laughs> we can have like, well, I just want to say right that now. it's funny that you say that, uh-huh. um, because that is so true. Yeah. Like forensic pathology, ha- there's a huge shortage of workforce in the field, which to me seems a little bit backwards since it is the face of friends of pathology because of all of the TV shows. Yeah. And yet, people aren't going into it the way that I feel like they should otherwise be. And part of that, I think, is because people don't understand that you first go through pathology, and people don't understand pathology is not just Mm -hmm. doing autopsies. And I would get that a lot from my family, too, because... I wanted to be a forensic pathologist, which was that face. And so when I was in residency, they all just were like, oh, so you're just cutting up dead bodies now for... And I'm like, no, (laughs) pathology is actually very broad, and I'm actually doing a lot of care for living patients. Yes, yeah, yeah. And even my care of dead patients is helping living patients. It's just... uh, It's really interesting. Um, No, I, I completely agree. It's like... Every time somebody asks, like, okay, so you put your pathology, what do you do? It's like, okay, I wish I had, like, a little card or something that had, like, a two-sentence line <laughs> about what we did. And it's like, <laughs> there's no, you yeah. know, and then I'm like, well, it ends up becoming, like, a paragraph. And then I'm like, well, now I'm thinking of an essay because, like, I'm like, wow, let me give you everything that we do. But, like, it's it's just one of those things where it's like, yeah, like, the, the like, unfortunately, we're unfortunately hidden um, and nobody, let's just say nobody, but we don't really, I don't know one way or another, we just don't really get a lot of understanding of what we do in, the, in terms of clinical care because our exposure to medical students is usually through like first year and second year and like teaching Robbins or Rubens or, yeah. um, you know, like people are studying for um, step one, like using pathoma and like all that, but then like the clinical, uh, like yeah. that stops three year three and four and we're in we're thinking about okay these are these are the specialties that i see rotating and then you know the lab becomes like kind of hidden it's like a black box like oh yeah labs are done we just don't know how but it's done (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, that's exactly when you sent me the questions. Yeah. That was the one that I was. Um, how do you see pathology growing in the future? I literally wrote that I would like to make pathology and laboratory medicine less of a black box. Yeah. And I don't understand how pathology got so shafted in terms of medical education. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, we play a semi big role in the first and second years, but I really don't understand how we touch like every aspect of clinical care. Right. We are just not at the forefront where the patient is Mm -hmm. but like everything we do is helping the docs and they don't understand what we do and it just boggles my mind that Mm -hmm. we that pathology is not a required rotation you know yeah it's like why surgery which so few people go into also you know like why is that highlighted with a four-week mandatory course Mm -hmm. and pathology can't even get two weeks when every lab test goes through a laboratory that is being run by a clinical pathologist Mm -hmm. every surgical specimen gets sent to pathology where we then make a diagnosis that helps with the treatment of the patient it's like how how did we just become so forgotten in the educational curriculum i I don't know if there's somebody who does medical uh history i would love if there was some sort of like thesis about pathology's role in education in the past and where we're at now <laughs> yeah, if somebody that would be so fascinating please, somebody out there if you yeah listening <laughs> just let us know it would probably be a great book to basically um put out there for medical school um and for everybody else in general i should say just medical school um but uh okay so the next question i had was about um when you eventually got into um, the field of forensics. And if you can let people know, I think for, uh, let's say for a second year or third year pathology residents, um, can you let them know the process of like interviewing for forensics, like what to look for, but also your current experience, um, like how your fellowship has been? Yeah. Um, So... As I mentioned, I'm originally from California, and I spent most of my life there. Uh, This is, being in Seattle is my first time living outside of California. Mm -hmm. Um, So since I knew I wanted to go into forensics really early on, um, I came into my residency program knowing that's what I wanted to do, and my program directors were very aware of that and very supportive. Mm -hmm. So actually, my first rotation was autopsy pathology Mm -hmm. because they wanted to get me my forensics rotation way earlier on in the process than they normally give it to trainees. Mm -hmm. Um, At at UCSF, where I did my residency, uh, anatomic and clinical pathology are completely separate departments, and you do all of your... um, your, your training for the year is either all anatomic pathology or all clinical pathology. Mm-hmm. We don't intermix our rotations, which I know is not the way most programs are doing it nowadays. Um, it's, most programs are integrating the different rotations. Um, so yeah, I was on anatomic pathology my first two years and then clinical pathology my last two years. And um, so just letting people know ahead of time that that's what you want to do. And if you're in a good program, they'll support you. And so I got my autopsy rotation out of the way so I could do my forensic rotation super early. Um, and then the application process for forensic pathology is actually going undergoing some major changes, some major excellent changes, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe we're the first pathology subspecialty that is get going to a match. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when I was applying... Um, 
I was told that you needed to apply at least two years early, and it seemed like from everything I was reading, that timeline was actually moving farther and farther up. So I started to reach out to programs towards the end of my first year, Mm -hmm. and then I was applying during, I think I started officially applying in April of my second Mm -hmm. year, and by then it was actually too late for some programs. Um, Like a lot of the alumni at UCSF who have gone into forensics have gone through the um, University of New Mexico, the OMI. And that's, you know, one of the places that I definitely wanted to check out. And so I tried to set up an away rotation there, which wasn't required, but I just wanted to check it out. And then when I reached out to them about just applying in general, they were already full up for the class of 2021 which uh, my fellowship year is 2021 to 2022. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know whether that was because I didn't reach out soon enough or, you know, I don't know. And um, then another program I was looking at was the New York Medical Examiner's Office. Mm -hmm. But at the time, they still required an audition rotation. And so with those two programs out of the running, um, I, you know, I started looking even more broadly. being a Californian who's always been in California, I did check out California programs, but in San Diego, their timeline, they have a specific timeline, so their application wasn't going to be open for like a year before I could apply. And since other programs was two years, I was like, I don't know if I want to wait that long. I want to have the security. Um, And a friend of mine just happened to have moved up to Seattle recently and so I started looking into the King County program and I really fell in love with their program just based on like the website description mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> because they talk about public health a lot is their emphasis because their office is actually a division of the preventative health aspect of the King County Public Health Department. So. I was like, great, that is their big focus. I love that. That's in line with my values. Um, And then they really focus on education. There was mention that they had an in-house forensic anthropologist. Um, They have this really interesting toxicology surveillance program. Um, They seemed in some ways to be on the forefront of certain things. uh, And and so I applied to them and I came for my interview, which was kind of a mess of a day. Those are the best interviews, uh, but, of course. <laughs> oh, yes. And it, it had nothing to do with them. Yeah. It was because my flight got canceled, like, the night bef- the night I was supposed to fly up. I was at the airport. The flight kept getting delayed, delayed, and then it just got canceled oh, at, like, 1 o'clock no. in the morning. By that time, I was like, okay, they have us on the first flight out in the morning. Do I go back to my apartment, or do I spend the night at the airport? And my apartment was only 30, 40 minutes away, but I was, I used uh, rideshare to get there because public transportation wasn't working that late at night anymore. Mm-hmm. And so the rideshares cost 40 to 50 bucks. And so I was like, I'll just spend the night at the airport. I cannot afford another $100 to do a round trip for the morning flight. Yeah. So I emailed them. I was like, I'm going to be late. My flight won't get in until eight when my interview day is supposed to start yeah. um, but I still want to come I hope you guys will have me oh, yeah. and then in the morning after sleeping on the like rattiest <laughs> airport bench with music blaring and lights on all night sleeping I got on my plane 
I slept the whole way there. My friend picked me up from the airport. I was going to go to her place real quick and shower. We got rear-ended on the freeway. What? Going to her house. Yes. <laughs> I didn't mean to laugh, but what? <laughs> no, what? yeah. Okay. So at this point, I am convinced that the universe does not want me to make it to this fellowship interview, which makes me even more determined to get there and be amazing and get the offer. So, so eventually, once the the car accident stuff was settled, we got to her place. She was, of course, a little traumatized and didn't feel like driving me to my interview. So I just quickly showered, got changed, and then took a ride share over to the interview. And by that time, I was like halfway through my day. I I missed so many things I was supposed to do, but I still got to interview with all of the forensic pathologists and like learn about the program. Mm -hmm. And it was great. And I felt like I would fit in there really well. So when they offered me the spot, I said yes. But wow. Yeah. That was a that was a time in a, in a, of itself. Um, yeah, yeah. And they still joke about that around the office. I mean, That's, you're yeah. definitely the memorable like candidate for sure. I mean, who's gonna forget that? I mean, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was worried that they wouldn't believe me because I was just you know emailing them updates like, hey, so I got on the plane okay and I landed fine, but now I've just been in an accident, so I will be more hours late. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I guess it's one of those things you can look back in and laugh like, wow, like, that's a... Oh, like, yeah. During that, like, distress and, like, <laughs> are they even going to believe me? Like, do you need to take pictures? Do you have to show them, like, you know, like, the insurance claims? Like, what do you have yeah. to prove, you know? Wow. Um, <laughs> oh, but it was... Yeah. I, even the day of, though, I was so, like, semi-delirious and just thinking forward to how funny of a story it was going to be to tell that i was mostly just laughing at like the ridiculousness of the situation the universe said <laughs> but no, but uh, no the universe said like all right no but you're like no i'm gonna make it <laughs> yeah <laughs> i'm gonna do it i'm gonna do I this know. i'll show oh, you universe <laughs> oh man yeah well i kind of wanted to yeah. use this as a springboard towards um your podcast um i know you co-host a podcast and i don't know if you can talk more about it um, what inspired you to do it, um, about you and your co-hosts, and uh, what do you ladies talk about? Yeah, so when I matched into pathology residency at UCSF, one of the uh, first friends who texted me was a, it was a friend of mine from medical school, um, and she was like, oh my gosh, I just saw that one of... Um, the people I knew from the MIT rugby team who's interested in forensics is going to be your co-resident. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is so cool. Um, so I, I kind of had my eyes out for this like potential new friend. You know how hard it is to make friends as an adult. Oh, you're yeah. just like, ooh, okay. Yeah, you're like, I don't know how yeah, this so. is. We can even play tag or anything as an icebreaker. It's like, are you okay? Yeah. <laughs> Am I normal enough for you? Are you normal enough for me? I don't know. Let's just see how this works. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Actually, for me, it's mostly like, are you weird enough <laughs> for me? Can you handle how kooky I, I am? <laughs> um, so I had my eyes out for her. And when we were at 
our orientation welcome picnic we really hit it off we started gushing about forensic pathology and how much we loved it and we started talking about all of the podcasts that we listened to Mm -hmm. um like my favorite murder and uh and that's why we drink things that talk about true crime which i actually had never really been into true crime growing up which is very opposite of i feel like a lot of forensic pathologists i didn't really watch forensic files Mm -hmm. because the reenactments just seemed so fake i could not you know get get into it um Versus, like, the fake TV shows, you knew they were fake, yeah. so the over-dramatization of things was, like, t- you know, fine, because it's fictional. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but the for some reason, the true crime podcasts really get me. I don't know what it is about them, but, like, I love listening to them, and I find them fascinating. So we were talking about them, and then we were also talking about, like, how many misconceptions there are about forensic pathology, yeah. even within those podcasts, where they're, they'll talk about, like... I can't believe that the forensic pathologist didn't do this during the autopsy or like, and then they exhumed the body and they found that the organs were all still in a red bag, just shoved in the chest cavity. I'm like, that's how we stand up, give them back. It's really up to the funeral home to make them look pretty. Like, you know, it's so, so many misconceptions that they were, they were talking about. And so we thought, you know, that was when the, the hint of the idea for like a podcast came about. And then, you know, as we became closer friends, me and my co-resident Jordan Taylor, um, we, we decided to find Lingo for it. And I think it was like, I was messing around on Canva or something and I made what is, um, what was the like a precursor to our eventual logo and i just sent her a bunch of them and i was like do you like any of these <laughs> you know and so you know once we had like the infographic yeah. ready or not infographic the the, the logo, cover yeah. art ready mm-hmm. it just seemed a lot more attainable so we decided to go for it and uh, luckily, UCSF, the library, has a really nice technology department where you can rent equipment out. Um, so during medical school, we used to rent out video cameras to make skits and stuff. Um, and so they had a microphone and uh, what was that, like a Zoom recorder thing. Mm-hmm. So we started recording that way, and then eventually we started getting um, like our own equipment once we realized that we were doing it more in uh in more consistently yeah yeah Um, so yeah it really just started from like really liking my co-resident and getting to know her and us wanting to debunk some of the misconceptions in forensic pathology and also you know encourage more people to go into the fields um based on their understanding of the realities of the field and not what shown it on those fictionalized tv shows nice. can you tell the audience the name of the podcast oh yeah i'm so bad at selling myself um the, the you, podcast girl. is called dead yes thank you. <laughs> the podcast is called uh, dead men do tell tales um and actually i feel like here it's maybe worth mentioning that uh we've loved doing the podcast for these last couple of years but um Unfortunately, due to bureaucracy things, we will be having to stop doing the podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing about forensic pathology is it is involved in the legal field, mm-hmm. and so there's a lot of um, kind of tape around doing things. 
because um, when you're up on the stand testifying as an expert witness, the defense can basically use anything that they want to kind of mm-hmm. deb- refute your expertise. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, having like a podcast with audio evidence of me having said a thing that maybe was incorrect at the time mm-hmm. or, or correct thinking at the time but is incorrect thinking now or you know we started this podcast while we were trainees so as trainees we don't have as much expertise and right eventually when we are experts in the field that could be thrown into our face. so there's just like a lot of a tape around like what is okay to share right, and yeah. post on social media for forensics just because of that aspect of it um yeah. I'm hoping I can still do things with social media, mm-hmm. um, but but the podcast itself is going to be uh, taken taken out of uh, circulation okay. soon, unfortunately. Well, hopefully there there are episodes people can reference or listen to at least to get more education and and about the misconceptions about forensic pathology in general, and maybe hopefully inspire future generations of forensic pathologists at least kind of like listen in hear what you know what the field actually is and not based on what is in media or like what's in the like um the i guess big general misconceptions that are basically portrayed for media purposes um but yeah so okay well i was i was glad to like yeah Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah no i mean we're we're planning on leaving the the old episodes up on the various podcasting platforms so you'll still be able to hear the old episodes and we do do um several episodes where we talk in depth about like what is forensic pathology and how do you go into it Mm -hmm. and um things like that so those will still be available uh not sure about the website since it costs money to keep that going and if we're not actively producing episodes um, but (laughs) but still hoping to post like educational content on social media in various places so um Yes. Uh, well, thanks for letting us know about that um, and about where it's going. And I kind of wanted to use this little gap to kind of talk about something that we brought up or that you brought up at the beginning of the episode. Oh, the um, diversified <laughs> path. I always talk about like, you know, I always wanted to get more in depth about the di- different and uh, diverse experiences of pathologists practicing and laboratory medicine. Um, anybody in the field about their experiences, um, the intersection between them, medicine, pathology, and diversity. And you talked about being mixed race. And I wanted to have the chance to hear your story about being a mixed race uh, female in growing up in America and like um, how that shaped your identity. Your identity. Yeah. Um, so luckily growing up, I, I also mentioned I'm a middle child, which um, I, so I have an older sister and a younger sister, and they are both uh, part black, part white like me, um, mm-hmm. same mom and dad. <laughs> um, and I also have two half siblings um, from my dad's first marriage, um, and uh, not as close with them because there's, I want to say like a 15, 20 year gap between us, but my half sister did live next door f- to us for a long time Mm -hmm. with her husband um and they also had mixed children so my my niece and nephew were mixed so you know growing up i didn't feel like 
I was totally alone because I saw people who looked like me and my siblings mm-hmm. and my niece and nephew. Um, but like out in the greater world, I didn't really see anybody who looked like me. Uh, there weren't wasn't much representation of mixed people in the media. Um, like magazines, I remember I was subscribed to like Seventeen magazine when I was a kid, and it was always like a white blonde chick on the photo, which makes you feel like you're an alien for sure. Um, (laughs) And so, you know, growing up, I got the question, what are you a lot um, from a young age? And, you know, I never found the question particularly offensive and I still don't find the question particularly offensive, which might seem a little strange and I know is not what is true for everybody. but for me, I, I, it always just seemed like a sense of curiosity. Um, uh, and nowadays, whether because of cultural shifts or maybe my fa- facial features have become more defining of some race, I don't know. But people don't ask me that question quite so often. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, when that question would come up, you know, we'd sometimes tell my parents later, like, oh, today somebody asked me what, what I am. And, uh, you know, again, for the millionth time. And my dad would always just say, you know, if people ask you, tell them you're human and it's none of their business. Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. (laughs) I mean, I really appreciate my dad. My dad is uh, part black, part white. He looks black. Like if you saw him on the street, that's probably the race that one might assign him. Uh, My mom is white. Mm -hmm. Um, So I really appreciate that he was trying to like prepare us in some way to answer those questions about our identity Mm -hmm. but at the same time it's not really how the world works you still have standardized tests where it's asking you for your race ethnicity and you can only pick one and other is your best option (laughs) so um so you know in general i would say growing up i never really felt like i belonged anywhere in terms of my looks um so I mostly just focused on, like, I would say I, I developing my intellectual identity. Mm-hmm. So my identity has always been centered around my, my academic achievements, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> for better or for worse, probably for worse, uh, my, my mental health says. Um, <laughs> so, so, like, that's how I identified myself is, like, somebody who works really hard, strives to get straight A's, that kind of AP honors classes, that sort of thing. Um, um, And it wasn't really until I got to high school that I started to notice more things about the dynamics of of race. And um, I'm really lucky. Stockton is an extremely diverse city, and I went to a really diverse high school. Uh, the majority of the population was either Asian or Latinx. Um, whites were actually the minority. and uh, um, But I did start to notice that as I was getting in those AP honors classes, there were often no black students. Mm-hmm. Um, definitely other BIPOC communities represented, it, represented, but there would be one, if any, um, other black students in classes like that and so that's when I started to notice like hey this is kind of weird Mm -hmm. especially when then you know because we were mixed my sisters and I would get invited to um like 
the events that they would hold for black students. Mm -hmm. So there was a black graduation ceremony that I got invited to. And I, I ended up going and it was at a time when my dad was working overseas. He was a stay-at-home dad, as I mentioned, during my childhood. But when my older sister got her license and was able to start driving us to places, mm -hmm. uh, he started working overseas, first for the Army, which he had always um, been involved with, but just like running boot camps or trainings every for a couple of weeks here and there. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so... Uh, he was gone most of the time, and when I got that invitation for the black graduation, he wasn't around, and so I went, and I ended up going with my mom, and I just remember feeling so out of place, mm -hmm. um, because I am fairly, I'm pretty light-skinned, more so now that I've been living in the Bay Area and Seattle, where there's very little sun, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so uh, I just felt like I, I stood out a lot, and it made me question that was like the the event that made me question the most like w who am i in terms of my race and mm -hmm. do i belong anywhere and those were really big questions that i didn't really want to uh to focus on too much um so uh you know in college i kind of tried to shy away from thinking about those implications as well and i'm so sorry i'm kind of all over the no, place no you're now. good no this is this is totally fine it's just not something i've talked a lot about oh. just because okay. i've i've never really felt like i belong in either the white or the black community mm -hmm. i've always just kind of um been drawn to people who are similar in terms of their academic interests mm -hmm. and so all, like all of my f close friends from high school were people that were in my classes and that didn't include a lot of frankly white or black people at my high school so I just I feel like that is my technical racial identity but I don't really feel like I'm part of either of those communities mm -hmm. um, I don't really know that I have a cultural tie to any race ethnicity per se Mm -hmm. um and i've yeah i just yeah you know I, I mean i you know things i want to say thank you for sharing in general because i think that especially where we are things are becoming more about socially defined race and one of the things unfortunately that maybe it's a subconscious or conscious thing that we do especially here where we're looking at somebody it's like there's an assumption about who they are race-wise, and then based on that, like the more about the the social so, social and societal implications of that, like meaning, okay, like maybe I could be less more or less on guard with this person depending on like how I talk, my diction, and all that. Like for my story, I I always say like I I did chemical engineering, and like there was I was one of two black people in a class. There were two or three Hispanics, but then like the one black person dropped out and it was just like hard because I was like I was the only black person there and so it's like here I am being unfortunately the representative of the black race in this class where they don't really yeah. have they probably don't have a lot of interactions with people outside of that and I, and I, I make great friends from that um, but in general that even in medical school too where it was just like like the same thing but in a medical field and like me extrapolating from that and like the way I 
I guess, put myself to interacting with people. And so, um, you know, I always value the experiences that people have. And like, when we talk about race and like, is that part of their identity and how it influences how they see themselves or like, you know, where they are at um, currently or in America or wherever, like how they incorporate that as part of their identity. Uh, so, and like for you, it just sounds like, like the academic aspect was more of just like, maybe how that's how you define your identity and like the race was or uh, being mixed race wasn't really the forefront of something that you had to define before you know talking to people if that makes sense yeah it does and um yeah and i think that's I, yeah, I just, I'm having a real hard trying to communicate my, my feelings about this, um, and my experiences, but, uh, yeah, definitely, um, being perceived Mm -hmm. as, like, that black representation sometimes Mm -hmm. when I'm the only person in the room and I'm, like, I cannot be the representation of black people in right. this space because I am not like a, I, I, I just know that I don't have quote unquote the black experience in America. Like as somebody who's mixed, um, it wasn't even until I was older that people started recognizing me as like black and white right off of the bat. Mm-hmm. I think, I think black people have always been able to tell that I'm black. Mm -hmm. Um, But a lot of times growing up, people would think that I was Latinx. Um, And so uh, I think that that was, it's actually interesting how people would interact with me in that sense. Um, Like in college, I worked in a catering kitchen and a lot of the staff there were Latinx. And so they would speak Spanish to each other in the back kitchen. And when I first started working there, they would speak Spanish to me too. And I have like a basic beginner to intermediate level understanding of Spanish. So I would try to talk to them too. But, you know, I would notice that they would like kind of talk about me in front of me, but in Spanish. And it wasn't until my roommate, who's Guatemalan, started working there that she told me that they thought I was Latinx and that I was like a first generation who never learned how to speak Spanish. And so they thought that I just was really bad at my culture. And so they looked down on me for not knowing Spanish as a Latinx person. And then when they learned that I was black and white, they started being way more friendly to me. Wow. Um, yeah. And my supervisor there, she even thought that I curled my hair every single morning to get it to look like this. She didn't understand that this is natural, that this is just what my hair looks like yeah. when I wake up. Um, so it was so interesting working in that setting. And I, I feel like that setting was the first pl- time where I like actively realized that my, I mean, you know, having people ask you what you are mm-hmm. and and not really feeling invited to different spaces that, I mean, unconsciously took a toll on me and made me realize that, you know, my race ethnicity was maybe, you know, influencing how people interacted with me. But that was the first time where I was like really overt, like, oh, like race ethnicity is actually a real big deal to some people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And 
uh, I wonder how often I've been treated differently because of the way people are perceiving my race and ethnicity mm-hmm. um, that I just don't even know about. I, um, yeah. So it was really eye-opening experience. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's just, it's so, it's really, it's it's complicated. And I, you know, I, I asked the question more because I feel like it, like, we're not, like me and you having this discussion, I always feel like we're not the representative for like, the black or white or mixed race or whatever race or ethnicity or socially defined um, aspect that we're people assign us physically. I always find it interesting that we have these varied experiences and like um, that it's never or for you know for parts not the same for each individual. Um, like I'm gonna do a throwback. Like I talked to um, like William Humphrey and Greta. Everistro, who basically just like discussed their their um, their uh, upbringing being mixed race as well too, um, and like how it's just like it just varied, like it's not the same. Um, and always just like for me, I learned yeah. from it because I'm just like uh, I, you know, growing up, you know, I'm black, and basically seeing somebody who's like um, you know mixed race get to know you more as Nicole as forensic pathologist and not as mixed race middle child and then like you know I, I, I love that you know you're basically going through this journey of just like self discovery and like how things are important to you and like kind of figuring things out um, and basically would love to hear it one day like you know how you grow you know day by day based on that yeah that's definitely something that I'm st- you know, I'm still working on and um, is is incorporating my race ethnicity more into my identity and like figuring out what it actually means to me. Yeah. And yeah, I, yeah, I, I don't know. I really appreciate everything my parents did for me. And I think that's another reason why I focused so much on my education yeah. and not so much on like my identity development outside of that mm. is because that's what they really pushed for. And like I mentioned, my dad tried to help us a little bit, but he didn't really understand, I think, the day-to-day struggles that we would be going through. Um, And it would have been, I think, nice to have sort of more of that guidance. Mm -hmm. uh, Like, you know, how to... I don't don't even know how to say it, but like... Like how to navigate. How to really own. Or... Yeah, one's own identity when it's like how to how to navigate society and really own my mm-hmm. identity. I think you in, own it. You've got it, in girl. Different ways. <laughs> I think yeah. you. Got, I think you're owning it. Thanks. Day by day, I love it. Just other experiences that I wanted to mention, just for other people who are maybe mixed race and struggling through the same things I was. Um, yeah, I. Another thing about my mixed race identity that I think I'm still processing and like thinking about is um, my like my imposter syndrome I think Mm -hmm. has been exacerbated by my mixed race identity Mm -hmm. Um, all of my successes I always question whether I'm successful at it because I kind of get the diversity vote like as a mixed person, I'm like, I don't know, I feel like people perceive me as an approachable minority. 
and so I often wonder like do I get offered certain positions because they're like oh well we can say you know that we have now increased the diversity of our office because she is part black mm-hmm. um, in addition to having these achievements it's like she's also part black so mm-hmm. like maybe my achievements I don't know if I would be able to make it to places on my own merit essentially is something that I've always questioned um, about things so th- that was just another thing I wanted to bring up is like the tie of imposter syndrome and, and race ethnicity actually do you want to do you want to give advice to those who may be struggling with their you know I guess racial identity now like advice that you kind of picked up along the way or things that may help those who may be having those similar struggles what advice would I I'm trying to think like if I went back and I was talking to my middle school high school college self or whatever what advice would I give um well I guess nowadays it's just it feels like people are more comfortable talking about race and ethnicity which I think uh, it's it's nice in that um you know it's giving people space to talk about issues that have always been affecting them, but people have been uncomfortable to talk about. Mm-hmm. But uh, I also understand how it's it can also be traumatizing on another aspect, like forcing people to think about these issues when maybe they don't want to think about these issues. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess just being kind to yourself is the main thing and something that I am still working on as I think many of us are Um, and you know giving yourself the space to explore that when you feel comfortable um, and to back away when you feel like you need the space Um, and just don't be afraid to talk to people that's one of the reasons why I love your podcast is like you're not asking for people on the show to represent a certain Mm -hmm. bit of themselves um, that you know you're just you're asking people to represent themselves as a whole and like showcase the true diversity that's inherent in all of us um and so i think yeah that's my main advice is just be kind to yourself and allow yourself to explore allow yourself to talk to people about their stories and to share your own story Mm -hmm. um, because it might help somebody else someday too and there are many ways to define yourself, yeah. and it's whatever you're comfortable with. Yeah. <laughs> Instead of the, the check boxes, we're basically open spaces, not check boxes. Yes. I like that. And I should term, I should like trademark that right now. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Where is the merch section of your website? Oh. I need a t shirt. Okay. So, two last questions to ask you. The first part is yeah. what are ways that we can diversify a path? The reason pathology and lab medicine is not as diverse as it could be is the same reason that a lot of um, medical and other like high levels of every career field are lacking BIPOC um, representation and it's because of money and opportunity so I feel like mostly providing that opportunity for people uh, 
to explore the field. Mm-hmm. So definitely more outreach. That's like my big thing. And that's part of the reason I was super excited to start the podcast is because podcasts can reach out to a lot of people. So can social media, mm-hmm. which I think pathology is actually doing a great job of reaching out via social media. Path Twitter is so busy. Um, mm-hmm. And I know CAP, they've had several lectures on how to, you know, use social media to your advantage as a pathologist and do education and outreach. And so I think it's amazing that we're doing that. But of course, there's we always need more. And I think more in-person outreach in particular. Um, Like, as I mentioned, when I was telling my story, pretty much the only reason I'm here is because Dr. Bennett Omalu gave me a chance. And part of the reason he gave me that chance is because he was um, really excited to see a, uh, a a part black female who was interested in the profession, yeah. and he really wanted to help grow that and mentorship and mentor. Um, so, I think my biggest dream, the thing that I have always wanted to do, is when I eventually settle down at an office, is to create some sort of program that can encourage middle and high school students to to really learn about forensic pathology and not just forensic pathology but like forensic science and pathology in general um like i was involved in a lot of after school extracurricular activities um i was in the the science club when i was in high school and i think you know that would be a great opportunity just to have like a club where once a week you bring in a speaker who's either a, a surgical pathologist or a death investigator or a toxicologist to like just talk about what they do and answer questions yeah. and bring in some fun interactive activities. Um, I really want to have some sort of paid internship program. I think that is so key. Um, I was lucky that I didn't have to work while I was in high school, but that is not true of a lot of BIPOC people. Um, And understanding that people want to do these sorts of opportunities, but unless there's some sort of monetary thing, they could be working a job somewhere and making that money and contributing to their household, Mm -hmm. which really needs it. Or they could do this free thing, which might like help them get a career in the future no so I would really love to start some sort of paid internship sort of opportunity which you know covers travel and gives them a a small stipend something that'll like help to ease the burden of participating and learning more about the field Um, and I know that there are already some pathologists who not the paid internship per se but there are already pathologists who like go out to high schools um dr henry sanchez he was one of the autopsy pathologists at ucsf he used to go to middle and high school uh classes and take some of the pathology specimens to show the students and i think one that's really great for highlighting pathology and like what pathologists do but two it's also just super important to tell people like how their bodies work and to understand like health and stuff by like looking at the actual it makes it more tangible like you can tell people oh you should you know eat well and physical activity and all of that and yeah from an esoteric like but but actually seeing the physical result of years of like poor eating and physical inactivity you know it's like yeah 
at something not just for high school and middle school students i feel like in general people in the united states need to learn more about our own bodies and be more open to talking about death because Mm -hmm. death comes for everybody and we should not be afraid to talk about it (laughs) yeah yeah i agree with that um and the last question is uh what are ways to get uh getting let me rephrase that what are ways people can follow you on social media to see how your career progresses yeah so i am on twitter my handle is at nick knack 363 um my initials are nac hence the knack and nick knack like a play on nick knacks uh and then um i also have an instagram uh i currently only have a personal one but you sending me that question made me think that if i do want to get more involved in social media i should probably have like a pathology specific (laughs) instagram um so i'm starting one and it's at everybody decomposes wow okay okay i like it (laughs) yeah everybody decomposes like everybody (laughs) i mean technically it's true um yeah uh, yeah, um, <laughs> I'm leaving that and, part off. And then, of course, the podcast for now yeah. is at uh, Dead Men Do is the Twitter, um, and we have a a, a website, uh, Dead Men Do Tell Podcast dot com. Okay, okay. Thanks yeah. for coming on and sharing your experiences uh, with me and the audience. It's been such a pleasure to kind of finally get to talk to you face to face through like electronically but face to face regardless it's this is the post kind of covid era where we're just like talking through zoom and whatever and this is our sort of new normal um any last thoughts or things you want to leave the audience with before we head off yeah um i first i just wanted to say thank you so much for inviting me to be on the show i'm really honored to have the opportunity to talk to you Mm. and to your audience um final final thoughts for folks it's um just uh you know if you if you ever want to reach out like i'm so happy to chat to people um i say this all the time i'm really bad at checking my social media but i do eventually respond so definitely feel free to direct message me um i'm happy to give out my email to like chat to people who are interested in the field and give you some tips and send resources just like uh, yeah uh i i am an open book in terms of like helping others and even if you're not interested in forensic pathology just like you know anything that i said that you want to talk more about just you know hit me up thank you so much for coming up really appreciated it hi again friends well this is it for today's episode thank you for taking the time out of your busy day this is the diversified math podcast hope you enjoyed the episode and then hope to see you soon